The nations of the world just concluded global climate talks in Egypt at the UN-sponsored COP27 conference. It is a current example of multilateralism. The issues of sustainability of our planet and climate change are perhaps the most pressing issues of the times. In GET Episode 9, Victor Fung and Sam Palmasano address the current state of multilateralism, trade, and sustainability. They provide you with a framework to think about the management trade-offs and investments relevant to global business success. Welcome to The Get, the podcast for enterprise leaders delivering timely insights for today's global economy and tomorrow's competitive advantage. I'm your host, Chris Kane, president of the Center for Global Enterprise. And on today's podcast, we discuss global trade and how CEOs need to adjust to a new landscape that is very different from the rules and guidelines that have been in place for over 30 years. We're joined today by Victor Fung, chairman of the Fung Group and the Asia Global Institute, and Sam Palmasano, chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise and the America's Frontier Fund. Victor, Sam, thank you for joining us today and welcome. One of the greatest developments for global trade and economic growth after World War II was the creation of multilateral institutions that set the rules for international trade and economic relations among countries. The World Health Organization, the World Bank, the World Intellectual Property Organization, and the World Trade Organization are among perhaps the most noteworthy for business leaders. These institutions have brought countries together to create and agree to a set of common rules and practices that were deemed to be in a nation's vested interest. But around the same time the WTO was officially launched in January of 1995 to accelerate the harmonizing of rules for traditional commerce, technology was enabling a whole new type of commerce and the internet to become part of society. Only a decade later, e-commerce was a part of everyday life for billions of people. Platform business models broke onto the scene and delivered the matching of buyers and sellers with more efficiency and faster than traditional trade frameworks. You've both been leading CEOs and managed global businesses over the last 40 years. You also have deep insights about market access and working with governments on trade-related matters. Today's CEOs have to decide how to advance their strategic tangible and intangible investments and assets if they are to capture global opportunities. And yet they have to do this at the same time geopolitics is reasserting itself over geoeconomics as the seemingly more forceful organizing principle for trade. So we see three pressing questions that CEOs must answer for themselves and their companies. And our first question is about multilateral institutions that seem to be losing their efficacy to manage global commerce and resolve disputes. How much effort should I as a CEO put into the WTO and other trade-related groups? Victor, perhaps we can begin with you and then we'll go to Sam. Chris, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the GET. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here. Without doubt whatsoever, Multilateral institutions has been the basis of the world's prosperity for the last 75 years since the Second World War. And I think we have all benefited greatly from the multilateral system. I guess all of us in the sort of practitioners in the world of business 
really are very much aware of the difficulties in operating that multilateral system, maybe for a good 10, 15 years. Let's just recognize, first of all, what we're really seeing in terms of the reality of the world, and frankly, somewhat despite the geopolitics, the very uh, tough situation that we're facing, the geopolitics, the world continues to progress in terms of trade and in terms of investment. And even in the recent figures show, although global trade has slowed down a bit, it's still increasing despite COVID, despite all the geopolitical issues. This ongoing development, I think, is going to be very important. Unfortunately, in my mind, I think I much prefer a global multilateral system breaking down more and more into trading blocks. We certainly experienced this in Asia. I think, obviously, North and South America would be one block, and EMEA, uh, Europe, uh, Middle East, and Africa will be another block. And things are progressing, actually, along the lines of different blocks. Now, if you look at the Asia block, I think the most significant thing that really executives need to be very much aware of is development of something called RCEP, uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It really consists of the 10 countries of ASEAN plus five, which is China, Japan, Korea, and Asia, and New Zealand. This comprises one-third of the world's population, one-third of the world's GDP, and one-third of the world's consumption. Now, the significant thing about the RCEP as being at the center of the Asian region and what's happening in Asia is the fact that it is really based on the concept of open regionalism, which means more and more countries can join when it reaches a very low barrier and it looks to expand as opposed to maybe other trading arrangements in the world are much more like a club, if you would setting very high standards. And only if you can reach those high standards are you invited to join. So this open regionalism concept, I think we should be very much aware of. And what that's going to do for RCEP is start rolling up the economy that want to join in. And that will become a more and more important free trade entity that the world will be working on. So zooming back and answering your question, Chris, if you look forward to the global situation, what I see is perhaps a reconstruction of the global trading system from the ground up within Asia, within Americas, within Europe, and then coming back together and hopefully in a, again, seamless multilateral system. I think the idea of trying to reform the whole multilateral trading system from the top down is going to be very difficult. Victor, thank you very much. Sam, you, you worked for decades with multilateral institutions and governments around the world. And you were the creator of a phrase called the lowering yeah. center of gravity. Sounds to me like the global trade system's center of gravity is being lowered if Victor is correct. Well, it's interesting. Victor is a great intellect and extremely knowledgeable in this whole area, much more so than I am. But I would just make a couple of points which Victor has highlighted then I'll transition to your question, Chris. I mean, fundamentally, Everybody was frustrated with the current status, even when I was working in the multilateral system and the institutions. However, the question was, what do you replace it with? And that was always the challenge. You know, everybody, at least in the business community, was seeking something else, but no one could define the else that they were seeking. I think 
Victor's now come up with a model that these big, large trading blocks could replace that as long as they connect. Their risk if they don't connect, and the risk is actually to society. People need to stand back and understand that capability, materials, components are not limited to a region. They are global. I know the technology industry better than others, but they're just, there's just capabilities, people, smart people, research institutions, not just the components, the materials, et cetera, et cetera, that happen to be located around the world. And to solve these future problems that we talk about in artificial intelligence and hyperscaling computing, you need to connect the world technically on those capabilities. Now, we all understand that's a lot of pressure from various countries to limit that interaction today, especially when it comes to national security. But a lot of those technologies are used for the betterment of mankind, like healthcare, climate. I mean, there are lots of things that we would want collaboration that solve these massive issues for our globe that aren't going to be solved in a block. So that is the, I'd say, the negative side of these trading blocks. However, that could also lead to a reconnection, but that would require some broader leadership than we see today in the political systems around the world. I think you're absolutely right, Sam. We really should much prefer the multilateral system that will allow us to really conduct global trade as a whole. And I do see difficulty in reconnecting the blocks, as you point out. That's why the blocks is definitely the second best alternative, but we're there. Yeah. So Sam and Victor, it sounds like multilateral institutions from a CEO perspective are necessary, but not sufficient. And the sufficiency is going to have to target and point the CEO to a number of neighborhoods around the world as the center of gravity has lowered in, in global trade. I'd like to turn our attention to the impact of technology on trade from your perspectives. Given the changing dynamics we just talked about and the geopolitical cyber threats that exist, how much risk do global platform businesses like Amazon and Meta and Alibaba, et cetera, represent to a company's ability to access markets and customers that they need in order to grow? I mean, clearly, electronic commerce has become an easier path to the customer, whether that's a business or whether that's a consumer, as trade has become both tangible and intangible. But there is a, a trade-off to that. From a CEO perspective, how much of a risk do you think, given the cyber threats that we see materializing both by state actors as well as non-state actors, does this represent? Well, Chris, you make a very good point. There's been tremendous benefit, let's call them the hyperscalers, I mean, the platform business models, that are running these massive infrastructures, which people refer to as cloud, which is a nice little you know, buzzword, but fundamentally, which absolutely created great computing capacity at a low cost point. So therefore, a lot of the benefits that these businesses were able to accomplish, whether it's in retail, advertising, go through the various points of these hyperscalers, but fundamentally was a result of that technology platform, lowering the cost that made things much more affordable than what they were in the past. However, there's a risk in the hyperscalers. The risk, quite honestly, for me, is not in their, I'll call it their serviceability or disruption of service. Like early days of cyber attacks, it was a disruption of service. I don't think that's the issue. These the infrastructures are pretty resilient. The issue to your point is the data. The data, where it resides, how it's moved, got policies around that. That's the fundamental issue. From a CEO perspective, you start with something very, very simple. If you have anything that you view as very, very proprietary, you do not put it in the public cloud. 
I don't care what people tell you, it is vulnerable and you're at risk. Now, there are ways to connect to the public cloud, there are ways to protect that data. It's called the hybrid model, et cetera, et cetera. But you would not take that fundamental risk to your business, whether it's your formulas associated with biotech or even Coca-Cola and Pepsi or the fundamentals algorithms that you might be using for exploration and production, those kinds of things, you would never let leave your firewall, right? Where you can secure and protect it. You can translate that to national security interests as well. Those very, very important data sets. The issue there though becomes location of the data. That's what takes you into public policy because there are all these restrictions put in place because of privacy and there have been issues around privacy. So therefore, it's not surprising that Europe has set regulatory policies around the data itself and its transport where it resides. It's not surprising that many ways that the current administration in China is shutting down some of the big consumer platforms as far as that data and the use of that data. And you see regulations in the United States as well. So the key there is the location of that data and the protection of that data. Now there are ways to do that, quite honestly, and still get the advantages of these hyperscaler models but it's certainly a strategic consideration. You cannot be frivolous in where that data resides and how you're moving that data, not only because of regulation, because regulation is, you and I know, tends to be behind the problem because the technology moves so fast. So they're regulating things that were relevant 10 or 20 years ago. And by the time they get that passed, everybody's moved on. That's just the nature of technology progress. So my only point is that fundamentally, I would have a data strategy, the protection of that data, and if I was a business, I would get ahead of it. So if I, we have a consortium of 25 or 30 CEOs that are working on these problems, Chris, and they're working on getting ahead of these issues because the concern of the regulations, it'll slow down innovation and it doesn't solve the problem quite honestly, but that's because it always looks to the past. So key, proprietary data, you don't put it in the public cloud. It's very, very simple. Other issues where it resides, and how you protect it's very, very important but be compliant or be a leadership position on data privacy versus trailing, because if you're trailing, you're going to be impacting your innovation. So CEOs are responsible for their company's assets. And in today's world, their company's assets are both tangible and intangible. Victor, you have been in business for a long time, delivering assets to customers around the world. And Asia probably is the fastest growing region that relates to intangible assets. Uh, your thoughts on the question about the risk factors affiliated with global e-commerce platforms and the benefits and the trade-off for a CEO? I think a CEO really got to put this absolutely at the top of the list. One of the things I would say on a pragmatic level, don't capture data that you really don't absolutely need and are sensitive, especially uh, of a personal privacy nature, that you have much more to worry about in terms of exposure. If you look deep in the organization, there's a tendency for your people to keep on wanting to suck up whatever data they can without really knowing that it's useful for our business decision-making. You've got to cut out this extraneous stuff because that really opens you up to a lot more risk because you're in possession of the data. So my, my first <laughs> advice would be uh, just make sure that you're capturing just the minimal set that is absolutely essential for your business. Don't do anything extraneous just for the sake of capturing more data. I can assure you uh, there's a great tendency up and down the organization to just suck up whatever data <laughs> there is to suck up. But I do want to say something else from a more macro 
global perspective in terms of competition. You know, I, I think one thing we really got to keep an eye on is the development of digitalization. I think this is a trend that we've all seen in the last 15 years, and I would not be surprised if this trend will continue, despite the geopolitics, frankly. At the business level, at the micro level, you know, for the next 15 years or more. And I think what we're really seeing is with the development of increasing digitalization in the world, I think we're going to see a increasing empowerment of small and medium-sized enterprises, the SMEs. You'll see a lot more of them really being able to access the global system because of digitalization. I'm talking about all I see around Asia, not just China. India is really coming up. India is now in the midst of developing something they call ONDC, Open Network Digital Commerce. And they're giving a digital identity to every small and medium-sized enterprise in India. And we all know that India is a, a country of a huge number of small and medium-sized enterprises of shopkeepers. And they're going to enable those. And it will be a government-sponsored network, minimal charge, and giving them access. And these will go out of India and we be going global. So the competition that we're seeing will no longer be, in a sense, big company to big company. We're going to see a swarm of SMEs coming into the world through this digitalization process. And I think you'll be facing them much more than even other major companies that you traditionally face globally. It's a tremendously empowering moment in time, Victor. I agree with you 100% the opportunities for small and medium businesses to reach beyond their traditional physical boundaries and have access to customers around the world is remarkable. And the opportunity will be fortified by good cyber strategies and practices. But what I hear you both saying is like everything else CEOs have to do, they have to make choices about which data is most important and which data they need in order to operationalize their success and which data just happens to come along and represent a threat <laughs> or, or an unnecessary burden, let's put it that way. Let's talk about the third question. There's a lot of focus these days on sustainability and CEOs are being asked about sustainability. CEOs are talking about sustainability. How much importance and impact do you assign to sustainability for a company to have trade success? Do you think the importance and the impact of sustainability for a company's trade success is high, medium, or low in today's world and looking five years down the road? I would say it's high plus. It's beyond high. We all know how important this is to the planet. But let's talk about business. I don't know of any company that doesn't say that we care a lot about sustainability. And this really comes to the very existential issue for the planet and for companies themselves. Because you know what? I think this is more than just a stock market issue or even a government or societal issue. It's really your customers, the ultimate consumers are really worrying about that. Unless you perform in that regard on sustainability, you're not going to be around for a long time in my mind. So I would say it's absolutely essential in the long term. But I really like to make a very a direct point on the difference between talk and actual action. Many, many companies talk a lot about sustainability, come up with a lot of nice looking reports on sustainability. 
And I think to actually really do something concrete, there's a gap. And if you talk about global supply chains and global trade, I would again move to the, um, the issue of digitalization. Once the global supply chain is going to be totally digitalized, I think the key thing that you can really do with it is to actually work on the traceability of your raw materials down to first, second, third, fourth, fifth tier suppliers. <laughs> you know, if, if you're in food or if you're in uh, apparel, whatever it is, you can trace it all the way back to the farm and the growing and so on. So I think that really allows us to look at the, the progress of sustainability and also explicitly doing something about it in different parts of the supply chain. You really, for the first time with digitization in my mind, you have the end-to-end -end visibility that will allow you to do something. So in order to meet this long-term goal and not just talk about the goal, thinking about the digitalization of the global supply chain as really now the tool that you have available to do something about it will be crucial. Sam, Victor has raised right. the bar. He, he yeah. gave uh, high plus. Uh, over to you. <laughs> yeah. No, I would, uh, I mean, Chris, I'll go back to where we began with market access. At the end of World War II, the way companies, then multinationals, got permission from society to enter and do business was they put manufacturing capability or distribution capability in those countries. You know, IBM in Berlin. I, you know, we can go around the world here and talk about those sorts of things. As the world was rebuilding, that's what companies did. When manufacturing no longer became the center of the economy, so they moved to more of a services economy, then you saw it move to intellectual property, collaboration with research institutions, creation of IP, et cetera, et cetera. So to Victor's point, here we are today, market access. When this world is digital, and it will be, it's going to take some time. I mean, these things are 15 to 20 years. Yeah. We used to talk about the, uh, the e-commerce or the digital businesses. This will be like the data model business. It'll be the data businesses. That's where it's evolving. In my world, it's a 15 to 20 year cycle. I could take you through 100 yes. years of technology, but that's what yes. it is. Having said all that, I think society, forget governments. Governments just, I think, reflects society. Society is going to cherish whether it's your brand or whether it's your, your relationship with the educational institutions, all the things businesses need to be successful. Society is going to value people that are sustainable more than ones that aren't. That economic trade-off is going to force companies to invest. That to me will be much more progress than all the regulations that they come up with. Because if you look at the regulations like today on these transitions, there's always something that's disrupted. Today, it's the low-income people that are being disrupted because of all these regulations. Energy bills are going through the roof. Yep. So you've won up to Victor. You went high plus. plus. Yes, you went. <laughs> yeah, I went high plus. Exactly. It's, it's off the charts. I mean, right? I mean, Very if, you're, if, if, you, if you're running the company, other than dealing with all these short-term issues that we talked about, you have got to come up with a strategy that connects your brand with the interests of those markets around the world that you operate in. So it's more complicated than just a global point of view. So if you're Nike or Under Armour, you need to make sure that you're connected in China and Brazil and the United States and all your major markets, those sorts of things. Well, look, at the close of every GET podcast, we like to take the last minute or so to give our listeners one strategic insight to consider. 
Well, we're going to change it today. All right. But we call it <laughs> the emerging critical issues moment. And here's how we're changing it. I'm going to ask you each, if you were to recommend where today's CEO should put their corporate headquarters anywhere in the world, given the geopolitical and <laughs> geoeconomic trends we've just discussed, where do you recommend a CEO place their headquarters in today's world? Victor, we'll go with you first. My God, what do you expect me to say? I would have to say Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we have been in the middle of global trade. We're at the heart of Asia. And I think under really one country, two systems, I think where we were, have the wherewithal to really access the Chinese market as well as the global markets. Okay. Sam? Yeah. I mean, I would go through a characteristics that why you locate. One is obviously a, a stable environment to operate within. So where do you have stability? That gets back to public policy and the economic systems and those sorts of things. So it starts with stability. The other thing you need access to talent and you need access to capital. So you're starting up a business, you have to have great people and you have access to the VCs or private equity or some public markets, whatever it happens to be. So I would just say something that's open and transparent and consistent. Now, when, when you would measure countries, you can do that. If you, as you know, Chris, you did this for us at IBM. You could take those characteristics and you could quantify them and model those and decide where to go. But I would start with, I think open democratic systems long-term are going to win because of talent development, low capital, somewhat business-friendly regulations than a closed proprietary system. It's no different than in technology. Open always beat out proprietary. It's just a question of time. I would challenge the idea of one headquarters in today's yeah, yeah. global world. I, okay. I think we really got to get used to the idea of, you know, multi-location headquarters. I mentioned sort of the emergence of blocks. I think you can think, use other criteria, but I think in this sort of multilateral world that we're facing today with such diversity. I think we really cannot think of one place where you can conduct global business, whether it's your political, whether it's, you know, open system, whether availability of raw materials or whatever. I think you've got to think in terms of multiple locations. So what you asked me, Chris, was a trick question. <laughs> so one well, location. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't a trick question, but you've improved upon it, Victor. So thank you very much. <laughs> And with that, Victor and Sam, thank you very much for your time today. We hope our audience enjoyed this discussion about trade, which is a very dynamic part of life and the economy. So thank you very much. We really appreciate your time. You've been listening to The Get, sponsored by the Center for Global Enterprise, celebrating 10 years of convening global enterprise leaders around the most important business transformation issues.